Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 25 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. Today is Wednesday, June 28th. I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek. And Bobby, Chris Paul is coming to Texas. Uh, yeah, but... Wrong, wrong team. Wrong team. Wrong Chris, team. Chris Paul, I know you listen. You are breaking my heart. As, <laughs> as a former Wake Forest faculty member, I feel a special tie to you. And and yet you did not. You're not going to come to the Spurs. I'm How dare Steve. You? I'm just crushed. Makes Houston a pretty good team for for next year. Yeah, I will admit it makes me a little bit nervous. Yeah, a little, little bit. Um, so Bobby, episode twenty five. Yeah, yeah. You might say it's our first quarter quell. Good heavens! All right. Bad things happen in the quarter quell. <laughs> you know, but it makes for good drama. And uh, every week we seem to have new dramatic developments. We this week have, is no exception. We have some new dramatic developments. We have we have some Supreme Court developments. We have we have some military commission developments. We have some, I don't know, developments everywhere. You know, for for a final Monday that that produced opinions that weren't actually, you know, full-fledged opinions, there was still a lot for us to sink our teeth into. Well, it's crazy. So I was, I mean, as you know, I, I covered the Supreme Court for CNN. I helped them with their coverage. I was actually there on the plaza with them Monday. And so we're going through the opinions one at a time. Um, and we get Trinity Lutheran, the religious liberal oh, yeah. case out of Missouri that had been what everyone was expecting to be the big case on Monday. And I'm like, all right, Trinity Lutheran, big deal. We process it. We did our thing. And I'm like, hmm. I wonder if we're done. And then the producer who's in the press room, uh, Ariane DeVoe, comes back on and says, we have the travel ban. The and, travel and, ban. And all hell broke loose. And the thing is, it was weird because just this is a, a nerdy SCOTUS procedure thing. It's unusual for the court to issue an opinion in a case that wasn't argued with uh, opinions in cases that were. So it yeah. Very, so so it all sort of. It hit. really even they were in, in sort of their press rollout of this, treating it with the stature that True. the media attention affords to it. Um, anyway, so so we're gonna we're gonna talk about the travel ban. We're gonna talk about the other somewhat relevant thing that happened at the Supreme Court on Monday. The the weird order in Hernandez versus Mesa, the cross border shooting case. Yep, yep. Maybe a quick word on a Tuesday development in the Supreme Court: a grant of certiorari in an interesting Iranian sanctions case. Definitely. Um, and then we're going to turn to more judicial proceedings, this time at Guantanamo, the new uh, news, the new charges in the Guantanamo Military Commission case. Right, this time involving uh, the, the person most well-known as Hambali. Um, and then we'll move from Guantanamo to Yemen, because why not, uh, where there's obviously <laughs> big news from the Associated Press about an apparent uh, tort program of torture by the United Arab Emirates. And... Bobby, some interesting but unsettled questions about the U.S. role in that program. Def- definitely unsettled and uh, conjectural, but we'll, we'll we'll debate that. I suspect. Um, you want to talk a bit about the Abdu Rahman Uzbeki story? Yeah, I think as long as you know, once we get it, we talk about the UAE holding detainees in Yemen. It sets up that sets up the proxy detention discussion, yep. and and then we've got this uh, related discussion of what exactly is happening with the uh, possible captures that we may periodically be making in Syria or Iraq. Totally. And uh, and then actually from there we might say a word or two about uh, the Sullivan uh, life sentence in the Western District of North Carolina. Uh, just a, a day or two ago in a case involving an American citizen, uh, kind of hitting on all these different modalities of, of dealing with a person's suspected involvement or clearly involved in terrorism. And then uh, what else have we got, Steve? Just lots of law. Um, and then time permitting, we might say a bit about uh, yesterday's story about Paul Manafort uh, belatedly registering under your favorite statute in mind, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Farah. That's a, a special do you, request. Do you say Farah or Farah? 
So I say Farah because Farah is the Foreign Affairs Reform and Restructuring Act <laughs> of 1998, which is actually kind of relevant to one of our other stories Because it comes up with today. the Leahy Law, correct? Uh, not just or, the Leahy Law, but also um, uh, rendition to torture. Oh, right? my goodness. So we've got Farah and Farah. And oh, we, my. And you know your, your Iran sanctions cert grant? Uh, there you've got Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, FSIA, often misspelled or, or transposed as, as FISA. Exactly. So we've got, we've got <laughs> F-lettered statutes. Up the yin yang. Yeah, four um, letters starting with F. Good <laughs> F heavens, words. we've got to be careful. Well, you have to be careful. I have obviously no filter. Um, <laughs> and then finally, if, if time permits, we might spend a little bit of time at the end talking a bit about our our experience co-teaching last semester. Although Bobby, time it, we may have to save that for a quiet. Yeah, week. yeah. Oh, you know, this is pr- speaking of quiet weeks. Quiet weeks, uh, friend. Th- I don't know if this is going to be met with groans or cheers. We are not going to uh, uh, broadcast next week. No, no podcast the week of July fourth. That's, no, our, that's, that's right. our Independence Day gift to you. Exactly. You you need to be doing something other than listening to us. That said, Steve, you know we'll both be in various places. But if anything really compelling happens, I guess I'll figure out how to do a a intercontinental phone based Skype recorded podcast. I I have no doubt the sound quality will be off, but I'm sure there's a good uh, app out there for we could we could use Reported uh, or something to to just, do this. Let's just let's just not have news next week. Yeah. How about that? Can we ask for that world? All right, well, 2017, give us a non-2017 Well, the Supreme Court week. will help because they got all the stuff off their desk. So yeah. let's start there. So, okay. so Bobby, uh, Trump versus Iraq. Woo, okay. Let's start with a little bit of a backgrounder on, uh, first, reminder about what was in the executive order that's under under scrutiny here. We basically travel have ban 2.0, Travel Ban 2.0, Executive Order 2. Or 2.5. As, or if or you have EO2 it. is the opinion referred to it. Oh, it's really 2.5. Right, because you have the modification. Memory yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so what's in this thing? Let's do a quick reminder. Uh, first of all, there's a directive to the Department of Homeland Security to review uh, over over a 20-day period, review the process whereby we decide, we vet foreign government cooperation in terms of providing information or intelligence on their nationals applying for visas. And if they identify any state as deficient, uh, that state gets 50 days to fix the problem. Now, that's not the exciting part. The exciting part is where the president directs a 90-day suspension of entry to the United States for anybody from Iran, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Sudan, and Libya. Uh, and the theory is that's supposed to – those are the concern, states of most concern when it comes to that kind of cooperation, according to the face. <laughs> yeah, this is not TV, so you couldn't see Steve rolling his eyes. But, I think but you could hear me rolling my I eyes. I think it's just assumed. Um, that's the asserted reason. Create some time and space to do that. Um, so you have the 90-day suspension of entry for people from six countries. And, and Bobby, just and, yeah. the, and the suspension of entry was means to an end, right? That this, the, right. the suspension of entry was to give the government time to right. go back and make sure that our procedures for reviewing admissions from exactly. these countries are sufficient. That's the stated rationale. And then separately, entirely apart from that, you have kind of this parallel thing going on with our refugee admissions program. So to be clear, that first bit I just described was just about ordinary entry. These are you know all sorts of people with various kinds of visas. Refugee admissions is, is a different matter. The U.S. RIP, USRAP, uh, refugee admissions program is suspended for 120 days. I mean, no, it doesn't matter what country you're from. Refugees not coming in for 120 days in order to enable this time the State Department. The State Department's going to do its own review of the adequacy of our screening for security threats ostensibly under the refugee program. And then for good measure, a final provision, uh, the overall cap for refugees to be admitted set at 50,000, which is a new and lower cap. 
Okay, so you got several suits out there, uh, one arising out of Maryland and coming up through the Fourth Circuit, one arising out of Hawaii, coming up through the Ninth Circuit. Um, both resulted in preliminary injunctions. Uh, for nationwide. Nationwide, nationwide. Right. So not just those regions. Um, the, the Maryland suit that comes up through the Fourth Circuit involves a preliminary injunction that bars enforcement of that 90-day suspension of entry for the people from those six countries uh, on establishment clause grounds. In effect, the court uh, below holding that it, it was adequately demonstrated and likely to succeed in the merits that this was religiously motivated hostility to Islam and right. not the stated national security purpose. Right. So a 10-3 decision by the en banc Fourth Circuit uh, in upholding the injunction on constitutional grounds. Now, the Ninth Circuit panel uh, panel decision, not en banc, comes along a little bit later. It's slightly different. Uh, it's not based on establishment clause grounds. This time, it's about a provision in the Immigration and Nationality Act. Uh, Steve, am I right that that was the provision that concerns discrimination on the basis of national origin? So two things. There's that provision, and there's also the requirement that the president has to make specific findings Right to justify such right. a, a so, sort of so sort of a, a formalistic process foul, but then there's also the the, the idea that you can't single out nationalities. And that those two are related. Right, and so there is a statutory basis there. Uh, but interestingly, the panel there upheld more than ju- you have more than just a suspension or. Uh, injunction against the 90-day suspension of entry, you get the refugee provisions there as well. So the whole thing kind of gets gummed up. Um, It comes to the Supreme Court with the government uh, seeking review in both cases, but also seeking a stay of those injunctions. And Which, by the way, by those people, yes. right, the stays, if granted, would put EO 2.0 into effect. Exactly. And so, meanwhile, there, there had been an issue, we should note, about the timing. I mean, you might think, well, hasn't it all, hasn't it all expired by now? Um, which, by the way, was caused by poor drafting of the initial executive order, which indeed. says this is effective on, you know, whatever, March 11th or whatever it was. Lawyers of the world take note March in a 16th. situation like that. When you write at the very end, Section 14 of your EO, an effective date, say the date you have in mind, but then also include a savings clause of some kind right. referring to the possibility right. of an injunction delaying right. it right. coming the, into effect. Or, or the date it goes into effect. And Bobby, we talked a bit before about the relationship between the different provisions, right, and how it's odd that in the clarifying memorandum the government issued about 10 days ago um, that the government disaggregated, right, the review procedures from the entry suspension because it suggests that the review procedures could go along even while the entry suspension remained on hold. Yeah, it's, it's a real mess on many levels. So what did the Supreme Court do with it? <laughs> did, did they clean up the mess? <laughs> uh no. Well, they did and they didn't, right? They, sometimes you clean up one mess and, and you sometimes leave your stuff lying around and make a new mess. At least that's the way it looks in my house sometimes. Uh, the court granted cert in yep. both cases. So yep. so in theory, you're you're going to have in the October term coming up, you'll have a review Not on the merits. Not the October merits. term, but October. Uh, yeah, the court was very specifically calling for it to be scheduled for argument in October. Which, so this will be way, one of the first super cases. super interesting, right? Because the court could have scheduled argument for September, Right, they've actually done that lately. Uh, so most recently right. in Citizens United I enables think. you to hit the ground running when the term formally begins. But also, right before the ninety days. Yes, they, so we'll, we'll come back to that. Yes, it, it, it's. I, I point out, it is a very conscious choice on yeah. the court's so part. So do, do you read? Let's, let's focus on that. Do you read that as sig- signaling that they're hoping the merits kind of go away? Hundred percent. But let's talk about why. Okay, we'll get to that. Um, that's not the most interesting part of this. I don't think it's that shocking. They granted cert. What's What's really interesting is the treatment of the separate question of while we're waiting, should these preliminary injunctions remain in place? The court said in part yes, in part no. Yep. 
There's a little bit of victory, a little bit of defeat for everybody here. Um, so you get a procurium opinion uh, that basically represents... Procurium meaning unsigned. Unsigned. Right? So this is speaking for a majority. It's, in effect, a majority unsigned opinion. Right. Now, we don't know. So unlike a signed opinion, right? This is actually a Yeah, weird, you don't actually get the names. This is a weird quirk of Supreme Court practice. We can't say with certainty that everyone who didn't note their dissent joined the procurium opinion, but the assumption is that they did. So wouldn't it, would it follow? Because okay, well, so we also have a three justice uh, concurrence in part, but it's really it's a dissent in yep. part, and let's yep. just call it a three justice dissent. Um, doesn't everyone have to be picked up somewhere? Therefore, can't we infer six justices in the procurium? So we can we no I, abstentions. In I other words, we can, I think we we can I think conclude that six justices voted for the result. Right. The tricky part is you have to be careful about asserting that all yeah. six supported every single line of the procurement. So the, the theoretical possibility here is that there were some who did not go so far as to associate themselves with the Justice Thomas dissent. Alito and Gorsuch right. did. Right. So those three justices well, so, dissented. So let's, let's go backwards. The right? question but, is, where's Roberts? Well, because I think once we describe the dissent, the majority opinion makes more sense, right? So, Interesting. Okay. So, so yeah. the dissent, right, which is Thomas, as you say, joined by Alito and Gorsuch. Um, would have granted the stays in their entirety, right? And would have allowed the executive orders to go into effect in toto immediately. Right. And, and I would say, you know, when you ask, you know, why, why do they write at length about this? In part, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch want to underscore their view that it's implicit in the majority's approach, which, which – uh, they may or may not be speculating here, but they they want to underscore. They think it's implicit that this signifies that actually the whole court thinks the government's going to win in the end. I I think that's overreading. So it. do I. No, but 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 so so I, I would say two quick things about the dissent before we pivot back to the majority yeah. opinion. Um, what is clear about the dissent is that the three justices in the dissent are convinced the government's going to win. No question. So right. they got three votes, and the question is, do you have four the and five? and Kennedy. Exactly. Right? And so to me, the, you know, yes, I understand. So so let's go back. So so we haven't actually explained what the compromise was yet. Yeah, yeah. So right? th- this is good stuff. Let's let's kind of roll it out this way. Um, this is all not about the merits right. directly. It's this about is about what pro- happens until October. Exactly. It's all about the the, the funky world of, of injunctive relief uh, pre-merits decision, where you're balancing the equities, trying to figure out how to best preserve some version of the status quo that minimizes the uh, the interim harm to everyone, considering that who knows who might win, right? right? Um, the the procurium goes through who the, na- the identified plaintiffs were, the particular individuals plus the state of Hawaii, and points out that in each of these cases, these are people, they've got real stakes. You know, this is one guy wants his wife to be able to enter the country. Another person wants his mother-in-law, insert joke here. A state of Hawaii has a university with the students that, that are enrolled that is trying to get in. Faculty they're trying to recruit. They've got so you've got these sort of uh, as pre-existing cor- interests, pre-existing or bona fide well, so, relationships. So there right? we go, right? Or so so the term of art that you that comes out of this opinion is yeah. bona fide. You say fide, I say fide. Connection, <laughs> tomato, tomato, right? Um, and so the, the the everything comes down to this distinction, hitherto unknown in U.S. immigration law, between a bona fide connection on the part of a foreign national outside the United States and no bona fide connection. So let's unpack that a little bit further. What the court says is, if you are a person, if you have a U.S. person or entity, state of Hawaii, these individuals, they're in the U.S. If the if you are complaining on behalf of a person with whom you have this kind of relationship, you want to get them into the country, you have a strong equity to consider in the balancing of the equities. Now, you're going up against the government's asserted national security interests. What the court basically said here, Steve, was that that balance 
is strong enough in favor of the individuals and the entities complaining here to where preliminary injunctive relief is in fact appropriate uh, in those cases. But for the much larger group of would-be entering into the United States persons who might not, who don't have, or at least can't demonstrate uh, that they've got that kind of person or entity waiting for them, those don't get in. And right. so, as you say, this divide is drawn. It's, it's a classic doctrinal distinction uh-huh. introduced. The court, has, I, the court has crafted a doctrinal distinction based on pre-existing substantial relations. So, but so, so let me say two things about that. So, so point number one, um, yes, the group of people who are now covered by the travel ban and not the injunction is mathematically larger, Bobby. There's no question about that. But most of those people are actually not trying to get into the United States, right? That is to say, you know, the, the, the executive order is now in effect for all of the people in those six countries, period, whether or not they want to come to the United States, right? So, so, so it's, it's a little bit disingenuous, as Justice Thomas says in his dissent, to focus on just how much, you know, this, if you do it by on math, right, it's a bigger win for Trump than it is a loss for Trump. I don't think that's true. I think the most persuasive thing of all is what Thomas says right at the very end where he says, this is going to create havoc yes. so for that, the next so, several so, months. So there I am, I am in complete agreement, which actually does happen every now and then, um, with the, the second senior most associate justice, right? That is to say, um, so Thomas basically says, how the heck are line immigration officers who, by the way, are going to face the risk of contempt if they're defying an injunction, how are they supposed to operationalize on the ground this brand new, made up out of nothing, bona fide connection test? Obviously, there are going to be easy cases in both directions. Right. Right. Um, Close relatives will just be easy. Guy who has been offered an academic position at the University of Hawaii. Fine. Right, guy who has never heard of the United States, right, who just is right. coming on a frolic and a whim, fine. But, but you know, the, and the dissent actually spells out the situation or anticipates a situation where maybe an advocacy group no, goes. The majority and, does. Oh, the that's, majority that's actually the says, yeah, yeah, no, right? that's that's strong. The, the majority actually says, you know, you can't go cook up a relationship yeah, and but, then complain. But that's just a conf- that's just a concession on the majority's part that they know what they're doing is going to cause mischief. Right? Indeed. It's like, it's like, we're going to try to give you some guidance. Here are three paragraphs that now the lower courts can go and try to figure out how to apply to all these cases. So Yeah, so what – okay, so it's it's all fascinating and kind of uh, fun from an ivory tower perspective. No, it's, uh, it's chaos. But, but other than – so we've identified the chaos. There's going to be a lot of micro litigation, if you yes. will, yes. Uh, at the administrative level as people try to make the cases that particular people can get in. Um, does the outcome here – predict for us in any way what's going to happen once no. we get to the merits. No. So so, so let's just play tea, tea leaf reading for a second, right? Um, I think here's what I can feel confident saying. The administration has three votes on the merits. Yep. Right? That's clear. Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. <laughs> no question about that. Um, the administration does not obviously have either the Chief Justice or Justice Kennedy. Who did not retire. Um, who did not retire. Well... <laughs> when, when you when, when you actually sit down and catalog what the court now has on its docket for next, oh, he's term, not going. It's like his dream his docket. Dream. This, it seems like the only safe bet here is next year we're going to hear a lot about Kennedy, and then maybe he'll retire. Uh, yeah, I, I think we'll, we'll talk more about that. I think yeah. that will depend on how things are looking for the 2018 elections. Yeah, but, but all right, be that as it may. Um, so we don't know where Kennedy and the chief are, other than that they are at least somewhat sympathetic to those who do have bona fide connections to the United States um, because they were willing to leave the injunctions in place as applied. And conversely, somewhat unsympathetic to those who don't. Which, by the way, I mean, Bobby, if we had just done this 
you know, if we had sat down in January before any of this happened and talked about how to shape immigration policy, this actually might have been the distinction we arrived at. Well, it's certainly, I, I got to say, I, I found it um, fascinating because this distinction hasn't really played a big role in in all of us who've been imagining what might happen yeah. next. None of us have really been talking about this particular angle yet. I'm sure there's some exceptions, but it, it's a pretty appealing one as a matter of policy well, so, uh, to draw so that line. I, I will say, I, I, I think some of us have to talked about the distinction between those who have a stronger claim to at least minimal constitutional protection. Certainly so. No, we've, we've talked don't. on this show right. about that. And so it seems to me that the line the court drew is somewhat like, I mean, yeah. the, right. So, so if we're thinking on a spectrum, right, um, bona fide connection, Bobby, to me seems a little bit to the short side of clear constitutional protection, right? Because um, clear constitutional protection means you have already some kind of physical presence or lawful status. Right, bona fide connection to me could be one step short of that. Interesting, interesting. Um, so it, it's so it's almost as if the I mean, so why didn't the majority just do folks with constitutional rights are are covered by the injunction and those without? Because then you'd have litigation of constitutional rights as opposed to bona fide. Connections. Exactly, and so and here, precisely as you said earlier, this is all kind of coming out of the the ether of preliminary injunction yeah. equity balancing. Right, and you don't really have to explain. You don't have to live with any no, consequences. It's a, it's a short opinion, right? Exactly. All right. So so what happens now? So. Two things happen now, right? One, um, all this all of this internal review, which we are told was the whole purpose of the enterprise, now proceeds apace, um, right? right? That, that, that's and, quite and, clear. In 20 days, DHS, 20 days. Right. And obviously they've had many months to well, be thinking but, about you know, this. But now it's quite clear, right, that, right. that, that this is going to go on unhindered by injunction. Can I just say real quick, yeah. so can the administration just kind of conduct the review, send some requests out to these six countries, yeah. some some obligations that yeah. may or may not be met, and kind of declare victory and go home and say, well, so, we fought the law, we won. So to me, this is the message that the Chief Justice is sending, right? This smacks of a Chief Justice Roberts um, sort of Dear Donald letter, where basically what he's saying is, listen. I'll give you a few months. The lower courts were a little hard on you, you yeah. know, I, I understand. We're not going to talk about anything you said. We're not going to talk about your comments, uh -huh, right? Uh -huh. We're going to let you actually get some of this into practice. Yeah, get but, it done. Right, but get it done. Right? Don't, don't, gonna, don't make us rule on this. And, and, and I have to say, I mean, so I've been very critical of the Solicitor General's tactical yeah, strategy yeah. here. Um, you know, if we had known all along this is where we were going. Yeah, actually, it's turned out really well for the administration. It actually has turned out really yeah. well for the administration. And so I, I'm eating a little bit of crow because the SG may have understood that the best possible scenario wasn't a real win, yeah. but exactly what's happened here, yeah. which is a sort of short-term, very modest rebuke of the lower courts. And oh, enabling the president to tweet something, right. you know, sort of. But, Spike the football. I, but, you know, cause remember, I, I talked about the SG never asked for expedited argument. Yeah. Right. Well, by October, the 90 days will have run. Yeah. And so the, the million dollar question now, Bobby, is separate from what's going to happen in the lower courts in the case by case. Are you bona fide or are you not bona fide? The big question is what happens at the end of 90 days? Does the administration, as you say, Declare victory, pack up, and go home. Yeah. In which or do case, they double down? Or do they double down? Yeah. So which if, I can imagine there will be an internal debate over exactly that. So if that. it's the former, it seems obvious that what the court has set up is a, what we call a Munsonware vacateur, right? Where, <laughs> I love it. where by the time the argument comes around in October, there's nothing left to do. And so they vacate the lower court opinions and remand with instructions to dismiss for mootness. Nice. Um, and then this all goes away, right? Um, if they double down, then 
I think, you know, they will have missed the signals from the Chief Justice and Justice Kennedy, and then we will have a very live controversy that the Supreme Court will have to resolve next term. What do you, I, I'm sure you saw this, uh, Jack Goldsmith had a really interesting post at Lawfare talking about how one thing that's notable is how much more temperate both the uh, the procurium and the dissent yep. are than, than the opinions below, which were sort of filled with a lot of, frankly, a lot of virtue signaling yep. uh, type language. Um, I mean, who knows if it was really an attempt to send a signal to tone down the rhetoric below. But I thought it was fascinating when Jack pointed out that his observation was that some of that rhetoric actually is feeding into the the pro-Trump criticism of the courts that says, oh, look, the courts have become the hashtag resistance. Yeah, I mean, so so Leah Littman from Irvine and I actually wrote a long post on the Take Care blog about why we thought the charge that the courts have joined the resistance is really unfair. Um, you know, I actually don't think what happened on Monday changes that. Like, I, I think it was inevitable that the Supreme Court was going to try to remain above the fray. Um, but, I mean, let's be honest, right? Lower courts also jumped ahead of the Supreme Court in the other direction when Obama was president, right? On health care, on immigration. And the Supreme Court never went as far as the lower courts. The Supreme Court never adopted the same kind of rhetoric. So, so it may or may not be true that they wanted to turn down the rhetoric, but the fact is this is what the opinion would have looked like. It's institutional. I mean, yeah. the Supreme Court is a different institution. In law. When I teach federal courts, Bobby, I really try to convince my students that even though the Supreme Court sits atop a you know, unitary federal court system, it's a yeah, very it's a different, different institution. No, that makes tons of than sense. The lower federal courts, and, it, it, and that's and it's I think doing a, different work. Right, it's got a different role. Um, but so, okay. so, so it's a really interesting, Bobby. I, I mean, obviously, it's huge headlines right now. Five, ten years from now, right? Monday's decision is not going to be a big deal. It's not going to be a big part of the canon. The real question is whether the administration forces. The big decision. That's, I think that's exactly right. So, may as well stay in business. Yeah. In, in our, you know, we, I haven't done this. Maybe someone else can do it. Uh, keeping tabs on how many how many uh, topics or issues kind of get recurring mention on the show. I think we've had travel ban in every episode. Or, or almost. Just about. Um, it's going to set to continue, I guess. Okay, now there, there was more. Let's move on to <laughs> Hernandez v. Mesa. Right. So, so right at the same time, the Supreme Court also handed down a procurium decision, Bobby, in the cross-border shooting case in which, just to remind everybody, I'm co-counsel to the petitioners. So I'm even more biased than usual. <laughs> Double biased. Double biased. Although I will say everything I say is just what I think and not necessarily the views of Hernandez or the co-counsel. Of course. You know, you got to say it. Yeah, um, no, right. So, so here's what's weird. We spent a lot of time last week talking about the Abbasi decision and how the Supreme Court tore a big hole out of the so-called Bivens Doctrine, the notion that you can bring a cause of action for damages against a federal officer directly under the Constitution. And I think I had said something like, you know, I expect that the court will um, either dismiss Hernandez's improvidently granted um, or will set it for re-argument, because I was surprised it didn't come down the same day as Abbasi. Yeah. They did something even weirder. <laughs> um, so, so we get this very short, Bobby, seven-page per curiam opinion where the court says basically three things. Um, first on Bivens, hey, we just decided a bossy. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Period. <laughs> right? Second, um, on qualified immunity, oh, hey, unanimous on Bonk Fifth Circuit yeah, you totally screwed up the qualified immunity thing. Um, and just to remind our listeners, because I know we talked about this before, the whole fight on qualified immunity is Mesa, the officer, did not know at the time he pulled the trigger that Hernandez was a non-citizen with no connection to the U.S. Um, and there's a lot of jurisprudence going in the other direction that says immunity can't turn on after discovered facts, right? Mm. In one way or the other. Usually that helps the officer. 
right? So um, think about a case where an officer shoots someone because they mistake a toy pistol for a, a real gun, right? In that context, right, right, it helps the officer because the fact that he didn't know, the fact that he yeah. learned no Monday morning quarterbacking. Exactly. Well, here he didn't know. It could have been it could have been you or me. As far as he knew, he was shooting an American. Right. And so the court says, no, that's not how qualified immunity works. Dear unanimous Fifth Circuit on Bonk, you got it wrong. Right. Go back and try again. And then finally, on Bobby, the most important question, right, is Hernandez protected by the Fourth Amendment? The court says, that's really interesting. <laughs> Full stop. Full stop. Um, <laughs> right. And, and basically, you know, the Fifth Circuit can consider that question on remand. But wink, wink, nudge, nudge, see a bossy. Maybe right. they don't have to. And if I recall correctly, there's even some explicit discussion about the sequencing and how you can do it in either order if it makes sense. And sometimes you don't want to resolve the constitutional question oh, first. I mean, it, it seems so clear. So, so I, in I, other I, words, courts below, please don't try to turn this into a vehicle on extraterritorial. Right, no, dear Fifth Circuit, on remand, deal with this on Bivens. Right? Yes. Um, right. Yeah. We've given you a way to get rid of this, get rid of it. Right. Now, I mean, I think it's helpful that the court clarified that the en banc Fifth Circuit qualified immunity discussion was wrong. Like, that's actually, I think, yeah. a salutary development. It's better than nothing. Um, there's an interesting, quote-unquote, dissent from Breyer joined by Ginsburg. Yes. Where he explains why he actually would have extended the Fourth Amendment. Yeah, so now that, to me, of course, was the part that, that extra interested me because yeah. the, the interest I had here was in what does it portend for the future of the Supreme Court's 1990 decision in uh, United States versus Verdugo Urquidez, which is widely taken to mean that Fourth Amendment rights don't apply to a non-citizen outside the United States. Full stop. Full stop. Um, the uh, the Breyer Ginsburg dissent, which by the way I don't understand why it's a dissent, but we'll go, we'll come back. Yeah, yeah, they, right. What you, they, since there wasn't a contrary opinion, well, no, uh, but not only that, since they agree that the Bivens issue has to be dealt with on remand, right? So, yeah. so. Breyer and Ginsburg agree that the Fifth Circuit has to be vacated. Right, and they want to share these extra thoughts. But, of course, clearly the choice to style it as a dissent signifies a, a positioning saying, look, we, we don't think this is what everyone else thinks. But but where are they dissenting from? And also, I mean, if I'm a lower court, am I, right, what, what do I find more persuasive as authority, an opinion concurring in the judgment or a dissent? I don't find either persuasive. Well, all right, <laughs> all right let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's unpack what their complaint was. So their view is, look, um, it's formalistic to claim that it's enough to say this victim was a non-citizen standing in Mexico at the moment uh, of the harm. Uh, you can't, citing Boumediene, and in the multi-factor test from Boumediene, the, the, the Breyer opinion says, look, you've got to look at, got to look at all the context here. And the context here is actually quite complicated and has a lot of uh, a lot of features that distinguish it from Verdugo or Quides. Although I think pointedly he doesn't emphasize that what he's driving at is just a distinction, right? No. Uh, he says, he, look, he, the, he talks about boundaries, right? There's there's a word he introduces. Oh yeah, yeah. Right? What is that word? We have to use Li that in the title. Limitrophe. 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 I, we, I don't. I've, have you ever heard of that word before? No. That just it kind of sort of like it, it's like one of those deals where somebody's clearly done some research. They're <laughs> kind of fascinated. You got to get it in there. Now, in all fairness, that plays a big role here. It's the it idea does. of there being. Uh, a real difference between the uh, the mathematical conceptual boundary that's you know whatever a, a fine line right. between America and Mexico, and then this gray zone sort of almost you know uh, 
well, anomalous zone, you might say, right? This yep. this strange culvert that represents, uh, it's got the American fence over on one side and then 270 yards away, the Mexico fence. Right, so for Breyer, it's the culvert, right? Breyer would extend the Fourth Amendment to the culvert. To the culvert. And, and you know, if all he's saying, if he had begun the opinion saying, look, I think that without touching Verdugo or Guidez in general, we need to recognize different. that this culvert, which is in no man's land, yep. it's jointly administered by the United States and Mexico. We have this word limitrophe. We've got all this stuff going on. <laughs> let's let's just recognize that that's an area where the United States, you know, as witnessed by a, uh, this guy, a U.S. agent running down there and shooting somebody, yep. we should apply the Constitution there. I actually think that that's really all you can take from this. I don't think you can say more than that uh, Breyer and Ginsburg have signed up for a very fact-specific slight inroad on Verdugo-Arquidez. I, I think that's right. And, and I think in an appropriate future case, it's actually one that I don't see Kennedy, like, you know, being horrified by. Oh, right? no, I actually think that sounds, you know, and they're clearly, when, when you talk Boumediene, you're talking Kennedy. Right. So so I think that's right. I guess I still don't understand why it's a dissent, right? I mean, like, I agree. it's it's a concurrence, but right. whatever. But, the, but what they wrote would be the same anyway. That's right. Yeah. Um. So, so here's what I don't understand about this disposition, Bobby. Why did they take this case? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Andrew Andrew Kent had some interesting speculation in a post at Lawfare, um, imagining what it might look like had Hillary won, and as the justices might have imagined, maybe they thought this. Maybe there were four justices, uh, Ginsburg and Breyer among them, imagining that they might actually get a new colleague, Garland or otherwise, by the time they're resolving this, and that maybe this could be a vehicle for a more interesting inroad into Verdugo Orquidez. He says, you know, total speculation. Um, I'm, I'm except, 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 right? The Bivens piece of it, right? I mean, so so that only works if you were going to get a majority on Bivens, um, right? I, I don't know. Clearly, they don't have Kennedy on Bivens, right? Yeah. So, I, what's odd to me, right, is reading this opinion. This looks like a case where, in any other context, the court would have done what's called a summary reversal. Yeah. Right. Where they would have taken right. the the bad qualified immunity analysis of the Fifth Circuit and said, "Hey, Fifth Circuit, no." Go back. Yeah. Um, without all of this hubbub and briefing and argument. No, right. I agree. It, it just seems odd. But I, I suppose we can just chalk it up to there must have been a coalition of four yeah. who thought there was it's some big potential here. The and they kind of rolled the dice and then decided to walk away from it. But then it's weird that when they granted cert, they added the Bivens question, right, as opposed to just focus. Because when we, in our cert petition, right, all we presented were the qualified immunity yeah. and merits questions. It was the court that added the Bivens question. Do you think they saw something here that they thought originally might be consolidated in a ruling or at least paired with the ruling like in a bossy? There would be something where they could kind of even out the scales of yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, that's, well, that's, I had always thought, because remember, they right. were granted together. Right. And, and because remember, too, the, so with Abbasi, the, the the sort of basic idea simplified is no new zones of Bivens activity. Yeah. This one's not, wouldn't necessarily be one of those, well, perhaps. I mean, I, there's, it's, it's, you, you, if they wanted to kind of signal that it's not as dead as you were predicting the other day, they could have used But they this. didn't. No, but they ultimately decided not indeed, to. Indeed, I actually read it as signaling quite clearly that they intend for the Fifth Circuit to say no Bivens. Now, yeah. here's but they didn't know that at the time. But here's, here's where things get interesting. So folks may remember from way, way back, the first time we talked about cross-border shooting cases, there's another one pending in the Ninth Circuit. Yes. Right? The Rodriguez case out of Arizona, where the officer in question is actually facing a criminal indictment. Um, the Ninth Circuit held argument, but then put the case in abeyance pending the decision of Hernandez. I think it's safe to say the Ninth Circuit might be a little more willing to test Abbasi um, right, and whether the Supreme Court really means for there to be no Bivens here than the Fifth Circuit. Well, that would certainly give us a pretty quick split on the question, wouldn't it? It would. So, so to me now, all eyes shift back to San Francisco and whether in the Rodriguez case. So, so 
the Supreme Court decision on Monday clears the way for the Ninth Circuit on qualified immunity. Yeah. It's clear now that uh, Officer Agent Swartz in that case, um, I always think Spaceballs, right? May the, may the Schwartz, <laughs> Schwartz be with, be with you. you. Um, right. That it, it's clear to me that he's not going to have qualified immunity. Um, and so everything now rises, rises and, and you know, the Breyer, Ginsburg, whatever it is, gives the Ninth Circuit at least a thread to rest a Fourth, a fourth Amendment yep. analysis on. Yep, I'm sure you'll, you'll definitely see a citation to that. Right. And so then, you know, does the Ninth Circuit say, hey, Supreme Court, did you mean it? Yeah, here um, we go. Then, then Rodriguez becomes a very big case potentially for next term. All right, so we got to keep an eye on both of these as they progress in yeah. Although conjunction. We know, we, come on, we know what the Fifth Circuit's going to do. Yeah, yeah, and I think we know what the Ninth Circuit will do. This will be fun. I don't, I don't know what the Ninth No, I, I actually <laughs> think there's a non-frivolous chance the Ninth Circuit says, you know, we would love to rule for the plaintiff here, but a bossy is just too... Too tight. Well, this is definitely going to be it's one of many vehicles that will test your theory that, that basically the door's been shut all over the place. Boo, a bossy. I, and I think that it's not quite as restrictive as... Which that. is funny. Uh, you would think uh, we'd both have the opposite reaction. I would think that. All right. Uh, last quick note on the Supreme Court, Bobby. Yesterday, yeah. um, right after all the news, after everyone had gone away, um, the Supreme Court granted cert in an interesting Iranian foreign sovereign immunity case. Right, where this is a case arising out of um, the s sort of a, a 1997 Hamas attack in Jerusalem, right, that seriously injured a number of Americans, um, where Iran is being sued for its, you know, alleged role in supporting Hamas and financing the attacks, etc. Um, Iran did not show up, right? So the plaintiffs right. obtained a default judgment, mm -hmm. and the question is whether they can um, attach um, to satisfy the judgment. $71.5 million of Iranian artifacts. Right. They go back US. to when Persia right. loaned them to the University of Chicago, right. which like, I believe in the 1930s, which I believe means they loaned them, wait for it, to Indiana Jones. They did. This is the, I love this. This is going to be the Indiana Jones case. All right. Um, <laughs> and indeed, the Field Museum is the other athlete. They belong in a museum. So... <laughs> Well played. Thank you. Um, anyway, you know, obviously, I don't think our, our listeners are super interested in the fine nuts and bolts of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, although one day we're going to have fun talking about JASTA. Um, but, right, Bobby, this is an interesting case because it shows how foreign sovereign immunity, which is a very Fed Court's technical nerdy yeah. issue, has some pretty powerful ramifications, not just for foreign policy and foreign relations, but for stuff like, you know, museums. And it has it has implications also for the uh, the larger category of of course of how we can use the material support concept exactly. uh, in through civil litigation to try to go after the uh, the funders or other types right. of supporters. Because just to be clear, the basic question here is whether the kind of property at issue sat it qualifies under the FSIA to be attached to satisfy a judgment. Um, there's one way to read the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act as saying um, the property has to actually has to have some relationship to the thing that the government's doing badly. Right, which clearly that's not present here. Well, which works fine when it's money, right? Because right. money is fungible, and right. so there, no one ever has a problem attaching pure assets in banks. But where it's, right, a Persian sarcophagus, right, from the, which, by the way, not just Indiana Jones, I'm also thinking true lies. Isn't it like a Persian sarcophagus where they hide the nuclear weapons? Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah. It might, no, it might have been. Carrera? I think it was a Syrian. Was it Syrian? A Syrian. Oh, us, us, Syrian. us, Syrian. All right. Well, anyway. Yes. Um, but that that you know, <laughs> this Carrera. actually has this actually has ramifications for a lot, a lot of these sanctions questions about what kind of property counts. 
No, that's right. So there, there are all kinds of sanctions-related implications. I think what's funny is seeing some of the headlines. Uh, I've seen some of the more fringe commentary saying, oh, the, the, the Trump administration is signing with Iran on behalf of Hamas. What the hell's happening here? Cats and dogs living well, together. It is interesting. I mean, so th- this is sort of a, a technical point, but actually two of the CERT grants on Tuesday um, – both this case and the New Jersey sports betting case, which has nothing to do with our podcast. Um, although, shout out That's to my friend, say, actually. Mac Verstandig, who is all on top of that. If you ever need a, 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 a sports gaming lawyer, Mac Verstandig is your man. What a fun practice area. Uh, he basically generates clients at the poker table. It's, it's, like, <laughs> it's, sure, it's, it's fantastic. I'm sure one needs a wide range of expertise. Uh, and he has it. Yeah. Um, so, hey, Mac. All right. Um, so... Bobby, in two of the cases, that one and the Iranian sanctions case, the court granted cert over a recommendation from the SG to deny, um, right, which is interesting. Which is, that's, that's really remarkable. Yeah. Um, okay, so now let's turn to our various uh, d- individual uh, <laughs> terrorism-related suspects and the various ways in which they might be so, incarcerated. So, How about so, that? So, let's say, so why don't we start with Guantanamo, okay. right, where Bobby, I was, I was, I don't want to say I was surprised, but right, we, we've been waiting for some Guantanamo news from this administration. Um, and we finally got it late last week. Yeah, so, well, yeah, so I, I've been very focused on just will there be new detainees? I'll talk right. about that we're in a still, moment. We're still not there. Yeah, there's always, 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 my friends, keep in mind, there's the detention topic at Guantanamo, and then there's the commission's trial prosecution topic. And we got some movement uh, kind of out of the clear blue sky. Uh, it was reported that uh, charges have been sworn at last against Tom Bali, uh, linking it, and based on the 2002 the infamous Bali bombing and then a subsequent uh, Marriott bombing. Uh, also in Indonesia? I yes, I think that's right. Um, now, now this is real preliminary. The way this works, and Steve, you should explain this, I think, um, gets ref- you get the, the prosecution in effect says, all right, here's what we think we can press. Right, the prosecution swears the charges. Right. But since you don't even have in this system a, a grand jury to go to to get an indictment issued, would you say the equivalent is going to, well— our friend Harvey Rishikoff. The conv- so, so I wouldn't say the equivalent, but the analog. The right? analog. That the, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, yeah right? That's that, good. Nice. Fine, fine work with your words there. Hey, you know, it's like I do this for a living. Um, <laughs> right? So so the idea behind a convening authority is that the convening authority is someone who is a sort of quasi-independent actor mm-hmm. who's there as sort of an internal check to make sure that the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed, to sort of make sure the prosecution isn't overstepping its obvious authority. I think it's safe to say the convening authority is not meant to be like you know an adversary. No, no, absolutely not. It's right? not a new. It's it's a quasi-neutral arbiter to make sure that this does this look like the right uh, boxes have been checked to bring charges. Exactly. And are these sensible charges? Exactly. Does the United States really, does the DOD really want to advance these charges? Right. So, so this. He has not approved these yet. We're just at the stage where the prosecution's office is putting it forward. And, and for some reason, was very slow to release them publicly, which was odd. Like well, this- I saw I saw Mark Martins, the chief prosecutor, saying that, you know, this is actually not too different from how it's been in the past. There was, uh, I think, a particular episode that was highlighted as, well, you guys came out earlier with—, with with the charges in this past case, um, he said, yeah, but that was the day that we also released them to the convening authority. His quote was, I haven't shown them to the, the guy who's got to approve them yet. I'm not going to show them to you first. I thought that was fair. I guess. I, I You know, I just, it seems like a silly, it seems like a silly thing to get caught up on, right? In both directions. I agree. That's right? what, yeah, I completely um, agree with that. But, indeed, and, and that now, so it's been rectified, Bobby, not because Mark Martins has released the charges, but because the New York Times leaked them. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, there's always that solution. So, so there we go. So, so we, so thanks to the New York Times, we actually do have the charging documents. And there are a number of serious Bobby charges, um, 
By the way, apparently I say Bobby too often on the podcast. Uh, apparently it's a drinking game. I think there could be no finer thing than a drinking game where my name is I'm the trigger. I'm just going to calling you something else. That, that just complicates and makes it more interesting. It's Chesney. Um, <laughs> all right. So, so, so the I actually my cursory reaction looking at the charge sheet is that these are a bunch of pretty serious charges, most of which actually don't raise much of the jurisdictional baggage that we've talked about before, where the government's trying to pursue broad theories of liability, not recognize international law. But there's there are two exceptions, right? So, Bobby, you noted that there are a couple of conspiracy charges in there. Um, now, it's conspiracy to commit a completed war crime. Exactly, which is a different kettle of fish yep. from the type of inchoate, inchoate conspiracy. conspiracy that has caused endless right. headaches conspiracy for the is a, Conspiracy is a crime unto itself versus yeah. the crime a motive of— li- A motive a- accomplice-type exactly. liability. Um, there is a question under the Military Commissions Act whether conspiracy is a valid mode of liability. It's not mentioned in the provision of the MCA that talks about modes of liability— I suspect that's going to be answered. Yeah, um, I think and, that'll and, be all right. And conspiracy as a mode of liability is recognized sort of under international law. It's just called joint criminal enterprise. Right. But, Bobby, there's also a problem, and Ryan Goodman and I have a post out today on Just Security about this, um, with regard to the charges about attacking protected persons and property. Um, so the charges in this regard allege that Hambali intentionally attacked these targets, but with regard to their status as protected— the charges only allege that he knew or should have known um, that these were protected targets, um, right? That's a negligence standard. The or should have known part. Yes. Knew or should have known, right? So you're you're saying that that's a drafting error. If they, they'll be, they'd be fine if they said, and he knew these were civilians and civilian objects, which given the nature of the targets. I actually think it has to go one step further. I think it actually has to be, and he intended to attack them because, because they were civilian targets. That he intended his attack to Hit civilians. Exactly. Now let's underscore. We're talking about the nightclub and Marriott. So this is entirely fixable. Yeah. At worst, at worst, this is some an editing type of challenge. But, but it's an important fix, right? Because here's the problem: if you don't fix it, then you've got an element of the crime, right? Which sure, is, right. You're, you're asking for trouble if you don't fix because it. Because then you're at, because then you're basically expounding a theory of liability again, not recognized by international law. And so we're back to Al-Balul and the question whether the military commissions can try crimes and theories of liability not recognized by international law. So would you agree that this is something that probably the convening authority would fix in the process of— Should fix. And I think probably will. It's hard to imagine they won't because I don't think there's any reason to think they're actually trying to expand the boundaries of uh, how you can charge someone for attacking civilians and civilian objects by reducing the mens rea. I don't think there's – why would you? They don't need to. There's, well, we there's no out. question, assuming they have the evidence right. that can document his involvement in these attacks, this this is a paradigm case. I, I think so too, which is why I think it's going to be really important that our your, your friend and mine, Harvey Rishikoff, right, fixes this. Yeah, and I suspect he will, and it won't, it won't um, be more than a small speed bump. But, but last, thing, last thing I want to say about Hambali before we move on, it is interesting to me – that while the government is in the process of drafting their briefs in opposition to the two Supreme Court petitions asking the justices to weigh back in on the Guantanamo commissions, they would choose this moment to bring the first new prosecution really in about, what, seven or eight years, nine years? So since this one doesn't partake of the issues that are in those cases, which way does it cut? Does it does it signal to the court, hey, the commissions have – no matter what you do here, the commission has a life and function right. in core cases that won't be touched by that. Um, I'm not sure which way that – I'm not sure that would affect me. So the only thing I would say is it certainly 
puts to rest any argument that the court should stay out of Balul and Nashiri because those are legacy issues, right? Because the commissions are not going to have forward-looking significance, um, right? It's, I mean, if nothing else— Well, you, you could still—you st actually could go the other way, right? You could say, look, the commissions going forward are going to be more like this. There'll be cases where you've got the person directly but if involved that were, in Yeah, but attack. if that were true, I mean, come on. Hambali is not typical of the remaining 41 detainees, right? I mean— the, the whole reason why we're here is because it's been very difficult to tie most of the detainees to specific attacks the way that the government apparently now is able to tie Hambali to, to the, the Bali nightclub, the nightclub and, the, and the Marriott. Seems to me it's a muddy signal. But actually, to talk about that point you just raised yeah. draws our attention to this uh, Abdul Rahman ah, yes. uh, Uzbeki. Segway. Who, yes, good segue, eh? Um, there's a, there was a report in, the, I think it was the New York Times, actually. Uh, I think it was Eric. It was Eric uh, Schmidt. Schmidt. Yeah, Eric Schmidt had a piece in the New York Times on Sunday describing, giving us a rare glimpse into the world of special operations manhunting in Syria and Iraq. Um, I think everybody more or less understands that the special ops community, JSOC in particular, Joint Special Operations Command, pioneered uh, a real rapid integration of its uh, uh, night raids, gathering information, feeding it into the targeting process, conducting more raids, and going around in Iraq and the peak of our activity there, very effectively going after insurgent networks, including uh, AQI, which becomes the Islamic State. Um, in Iraq, and then later on transposing this in the form of an expeditionary targeting force, doing the same sort of thing against uh, targets in Afghanistan. And then about, oh, I don't know, um, spring 2016, it became public that we were now trying to do the same thing in Iraq and then in Syria uh, with respect to high-value Islamic State targets. Now, all that's you know, interesting, important, uh, doesn't really present any, you know, specific legal issues. But here, here's what's funny. We, we don't get much insight. It's a combat zone. You don't get detailed reports of they did this, they did that. Every now and then there's a story, usually because it, it becomes public, there was an attempt to capture uh, rather than, say, a drone strike. There was an actual attempt to grab somebody on the ground. This is one of those stories. We've had a few. Uh, it didn't turn out to be a capture. There was a firefight at the, uh, the point of contact, and Abdul Rahman Uzbeki was killed in that firefight, we're told. Um, what's fascinating, Steve... Is what it, if he hadn't been? What if he hadn't been? The article doesn't purport to describe the full range of disposition options that may have been on the table, but it conspicuously talks about one. It talks about plans in place to try to prosecute the guy, not in a military commission at Guantanamo, not not in some other location in federal civilian court, which no of course, way. yeah, which of course makes tons of sense. You would, you know, the, what a what a what a crazy idea. What a crazy idea. They, but they heavens but, to Betsy. But Steve, they win all the time. <laughs> so so that in itself is not interesting. What what of course is fascinating is you know this is the playbook. This is the this is the model we've had for many years now from the Obama administration. The Trump administration had signaled that it was going to, you know, reopen Guantanamo, that it was going to really dive in and double down on military commission well, prosecutions. And, indeed, and, and, and had been very critical of the Obama administration for, Absolutely. for not doing those things. Now, I think we all understand at a minimum that that's rhetoric, that's politics, that's campaign promises. Uh, the interesting question all along has been, are they really going to act on any of that? Right. Uh, it's not hard to understand that this administration might have been perfectly happy to denounce what Obama was doing, but not actually do anything costly to change the process. Now, you might say, like, well, why would it be costly to bring the guy to Guantanamo? Because it's far from clear, as we've emphasized here on this program before, far from clear that the 2001 AUMF, let alone the 2002 AUMF, would be 
construed by the courts on habeas, which would follow from taking such a person to Guantanamo, would be construed by the courts to extend to the Islamic State. And talk about opening up a can of worms that, or, or waking up a sleeping dog, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it seems quite possible that one of two things was going on here. A, they don't, they're not actually eager to bring an Islamic State detainee out. They don't need to. They've got disposition options in theater with Iraqi and Kurdish authorities. Or if they really want to bring the person in to the United States, they have the civilian court system, which almost always wins in these cases. Um, and that it's just not necessary to follow through on the promise that they were going to do something really different on this score. Uh, I think that's probably the, the case. It's also possible, option two is, the story is just incomplete in this respect and that Whoever the sources were, weren't talking about the full range of options that, in fact, were on the table. Um, so, again, watch this space. Now, um, Steve, why don't we pivot from that situation where there was an attempt to put someone directly into our custody to the slightly different fact pattern where someone is not in our custody but in the hands of a uh, counterterrorism ally, yeah, in this, this case, a, the UAE. So this was a big story from last Thursday that the Associated Press broke, Bobby, about some pretty alarming reports that uh, the United Arab Emirates was operating, I think the AP story said, 18 different secret you know, black site prison facilities in Yemen where it was apparently holding and coercively interrogating, if not torturing, various, I think probably mostly AQAP terrorism suspects. The story's a little vague, but the implication, the strong implication was that AQAP members uh, were ending up, maybe as well as many others. In fact, there's no reason on earth to think this would be AQAP only, given that the primary mission of the UAE forces down there is to fight the Houthis. I think that's right. So it could have been some Houthi rebels, right, along with AQAP fighters. But right, that, I mean, it's, it's presumably only folks being picked up in that part of the world, right? The UAE doesn't exactly have the military capacity to be picking up folks in the Horn of Africa and shipping them to... No, right. And, and just for context, to make sure everybody's on the same page. So the UAE is sort of the lead military force on the ground, assisting with boots on the ground, uh, the Yemeni government against the Houthi rebels right. in the north. This is all part of the Saudi-led... Yep. The Saudis are, are providing air power, right. but it's the UAE putting in special ops forces with, on the as, ground. With, with, with Iran as the proxy lurking on the other side. Exactly. And and then that's sort of overlaid on top of the long-running U.S. and Yemeni government effort to suppress AQAP. So this is where things get interesting, right? So, okay, so the UAE is running 18 different black sites in Yemen where they're holding some combination of Houthi and AQAP suspects. Um, the real qu- that's obviously a big deal. It's a big story. This is not a podcast well, well, about. Can I just pause on that one and ask? Is it, it security law? if we if we separated out the conditions of confinement there? My reaction is like, well, of course the UAE has detention facilities in theater. It's an armed conflict. There's boots on yes, the yes, ground, yes, yes, regular yes. combat but, going but, on. But yes, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how is the play? Right. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the conditions are kind of a big deal. Of course, and that's why I said let's set those aside for a second and just isolate the and isolate the question: Is it a big deal that there's no. facilities? Because I think when we start talking about it, like there's black sites, this is big okay, revelation. Wait, so, so let me separate out facilities from black sites, right? If they were notorious detention facilities that were that were that 
where you know where there was formal Red Cross notification, where all of the boxes were checked. Now, Fine. interestingly, interesting, the story never mentions the Red Cross one way or the other. Now, the implication is that well, surely the Red Cross doesn't know. No, no, I, no, 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 no. I think it's the other way around. I think the implication is that I think if the Red Cross hadn't been notified, they would have made noise. I, I actually think I read the story exactly the other way. Uh, so the, the Red Cross does know and doesn't want any publicity, right? And, well, of and, course, right? No, but that but that suggests that you, you mentioned a moment ago this possibility. That, look, if these were open and notorious facilities, that might be different. But what By matters? Way, I don't know why I'm quoting adverse possession. Indeed, <laughs> open and notorious. Let's just say. Look, I guess what I want to single out is the idea that um, it's, A, not surprising that the UAE is maintaining in-theater detention facilities. They're engaged in an armed conflict with boots-on-the-ground presence. Uh, B, it looks like the best inference is that they probably have disclosed these to the Red Cross and that Red Cross visitation of some kind probably is taking place. Um, The conditions of confinement are a huge issue. Let's now get to that. But I don't have a problem with what I've heard up to that point. All right. So, well, so there are two issues, right? One is the conditions in the abstract and the other is the U.S. involvement. Right. So let's talk about the conditions in the abstract and the problems the UAE at least might have. Okay. So AP Story says there's torture. Yeah, um, and really, really uh, vivid stuff. I think that this sort of uh, rotisserie grill form of torture, which is sort of a, a, you know, incredibly, we keep getting new additions to the to the lexicon of, of creative ways people abuse people. Um, so, right, there's a Milgram experiment point to make there somewhere. But, right, so, so you know, I, I take very seriously and I think rather substantially, right, the AP's the, the, the claims at the heart of the AP story that at least some of these facilities have been torturing some of these detainees. It's so that the sourcing is uh, they've spoken to a lot of former detainees yep. um, the, the, who actually will help them reconstruct right visually what some of these facilities look like. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that there's no question that there are facilities yeah. and that, in fact, some people were held there. There's an, there is an interesting question to what extent uh, is the description of the torture? Is there exaggeration? It's certainly possible. It's possible. We have to acknowledge that's possible. Yeah, it's possible. Just right. as it's also possible that every word of it's true. Right. So let's turn to the U.S. So um, let me start with what the AP story reports the U.S. role has been. And let's, let's maybe talk a bit about the implications, right? So the AP reports that the U.S. role has been um, sort of two pieces, right? One, that the U.S. is aware of these detentions and these facilities and has been in at least some circumstances feeding questions, right, to interrogators and perhaps even, the AP story insinuates, having individual U.S. personnel either in the room or at least, you know, in the facility while these interrogations are going on. Right. I think there, there's, a, there's a clear assertion that a, the, whether it's uh, fed, questions fed by the United States or not, at least some of the fruits of interrogation are being shared. Well, that's what I was going. That was two. Oh, okay. I was oh, going okay. to okay. separate active involvement from passive receipt. Okay. Okay. Right. So, the, so the least controversial, though still potentially controversial. Well, yeah, yeah, I was going to say. Uh, but less controversial. Maybe we're receiving the fruits of what may be uh, torture. Right. Um, and then, as you said a moment ago. Maybe may- actively involved, not in the torture. Right. right. There's n- in- the, the article is very clear. There is no claim that U.S. personnel are doing this any of this themselves. Uh, but there is a claim that we're either feeding questions. And then I think the description is not that the U.S. personnel are going into any of those 18 facilities. The article wraps up with this uh, kind of an extended discussion uh, with a few sources from Yemen claiming that they have on occasion taken detainees out to ships. They don't say U.S. ships, by the way. The strong implication to me was Yemeni ships. Uh, and that U.S. personnel on uh, come to that ship and in person ask questions. Not No torture in that setting. It's more of a situation where someone maybe is tortured elsewhere and now you're accessing them. So what do you draw from all that? Well, so so let me take this in. So 
first, the first time I say is we need to know more. Right. Um, right. Which is to right. say, right? Right. I, we don't have enough to draw firm conclusions. And so, and so, I very and there was there was some movement on the Hill, um, right, late last week and early this week to actually get the government to turn over more information about the U.S. role. But I think they're after, you know, dare I say, there needs to be some kind of investigation is too strong, but congressional query um, about to, just to get to exactly what the U.S. role was. Um, second, Bobby, this is sort of worth saying. It is not at all clear to me that even if our role was only passive, that that's legal. Um, right. I mean, there's actually at least some support for the notion that under international law, it's a violation of human rights obligations to knowingly receive intelligence information that was obtained through torture. So the, the big question, as you say, we really don't have enough information to, to judge it. Um, there's some smoke here. If I'm, I have no doubt that the U.S. government's – first of all, I have no doubt that we received some information from the fruits of these interrogations. It would be bizarre if we weren't, frankly. Right. I'd be very surprised. Um, the interesting question is what is the actual – first of all, who, whose knowledge counts, right? We're talking about real people. Whose knowledge counts? Is it, is it the uh, president's knowledge? Is it the relevant liaison official who's um, – you know, Well, wait till we get to the Leahy law. Yeah, well, so we'll get... the, the Leahy law, the relevant officials are the secretaries of state and defense. Right. But so but that's not where we're at now right. for this question of possible complicity in, in torture, which is what we're really talking about yep. here. Um, who, whose mental state is in, at stake and yep. what is it exactly they need to know and at what degree of confidence? Yep. And, and those are interesting. Is questions. it clear what the legal, what the doctrinal answer is to those legal questions? What the 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 standard of, of confidence is, and which no. government officials? I no. think a lot of that's un. Undi- so, so I have a long post on just security from last Thursday that actually tries to walk through some of the questions, right? And something. Yeah. And so I, I would direct folks who are interested to to that post for more. Um, but at the very least, it's a serious charge that ought to be you know yep. run down. Any any allegation of torture definitely um, always serious. But also separate from the international human rights obligations, we should talk about the Leahy law. Uh, right. So the Leahy law is this um, actually series of provisions, right? For well, right? I, before we move away from that, I do. I just kind of want to put down my marker that yeah. based on what I've seen so far, there's certainly reason to look further, not just Congress. I mean, who knows what Congress is going to accomplish here? <laughs> uh, but certainly, you know, from the Gen- DOD general counsel and yep. inspector general kind of perspective, you do want to make sure that we are not getting enmeshed in someone else's torture. That's right. Um, I didn't see enough in that article to convince me by any stretch that, in fact, what's going on is we absolutely know and are trying to take advantage of abusive interrogation. It's certain, there's smoke, and so it needs to be investigated, but I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're there yet either. I, I'm a little more – I thought the Pentagon's response was a little strange under the circumstances. Um, in the, like the, the, the way that Pentagon sources are described in the story right, and are quoted in the story, um, I guess – Perhaps not unusual, given where you and I often come down on these issues. I I see a little more smoke, right. right, and have a slightly stronger suspicion that there's more than nothing going on here. But again, it's just a suspicion. It's a degree. Yeah. The difference I think between the two of us is the degree of our suspicion, not our not our conclusion. I think that's right, and I also think it's worth going back to a point we made a moment ago, just to underscore it. I think it's actually kind of problematic that the actually relevant international law is as indeterminate on such a key question well, as right. who is it that really matters. I mean, what if there's a what if there's a person at DIA who's involved? Yeah. Who absolutely thinks, yeah, they're probably torturing it, but that's not but what Secretary and never reports that right. But that's not what the DNI thinks, or, or in Secretary Tillerson has a different view. Whose mental state matters, well, and, and how certain can you even quantify but, it? But so here's the segue. So this is why I actually do want to talk about the Leahy Law here, because I think the Leahy Law does provide a useful standard, um, right? So the Leahy Law is a series of provisions that were adopted in the 1990s that prohibit the state and defense departments from providing military assistance to foreign military units if the relevant secretary, and here's the statutory language, quote, 
has credible information that the unit has committed a gross violation of human rights, unquote. Right. So the question is whether the Secretary of State and or Defense in this context has credible information that the UAE, Bobby Wright, is engaged in a uh, gross violation of human rights. Um, credibility is the question there. Yeah. Well, so there's an exception, though, right? And there was a good post also yeah. just security in, in the author's. Luke Hardick. It was Luke's post, right. Yeah. And he kind of gives this great primer yeah. on, on the Leahy Law. And I believe he has a section in it that describes how um, not every form of U.S. involvement with these uh, security forces is involved. And I think that foreign internal defense assistance, which is very arguably yep. uh, exactly what this is, or at least closely related, uh, is not actually touched well, and there's, by And there's this. another point here, right, which is the Leahy Law prohibits state and DOD. Leahy Law doesn't touch CIA. Right? That's right. And so if some of this, if some of the support is actually coming from the agency yeah. and not from DOD or, or no, There, there or are state. a lot of ways around it. Even So even if there is a Leahy Law prohibition attaching here, yep. that only affects certain amounts of funding. Oh, and, I agree. And, oh, no, yeah. it's, this is not. But, but again, yeah. this just underscores the point to me, which is we need, we, you know, this is this is a story that deserves to be run down, right? And that deserves to be sort of fleshed out. Yeah, it's, you know, and one might think like, yeah, why would anyone say anything other than, yeah, let's have a full-fledged public open extensive hearing? Well, because this is this is about the foreign liaison relationship. Well, I, I didn't hear me say yeah. public. No, I know, I know. I, I, I I, I mean, I'm not saying you would say that. I'm saying that some listener but, might. But, but Bob, in, in a crazy world where the separation of powers works the way it's supposed to, we'll call it 2016. Yeah. House and Senate Armed Services, and or maybe intelligence. the intelligence committees. Or both, right? Yeah. I mean, this strikes me as the sort of classically non-political um, or right, at least, at least, at least initially, yeah. um, right? Because it's probably started in the Obama administration, right? This is probably not about the Trump administration oh, I, ramping yeah, up the, something. I think it's extremely unlikely that this is some thing nefarious that cooks up Trump. In the right? No, no, yeah, no, yeah. no. Exactly. So, 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 you know, in the good old days of meaningful congressional oversight, right? Wh- which year was that? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> not this one, right? I actually, you know, this is the, exactly the kind of investigation that I would have trust not trusted yeah. I, that I would have certainly. Started with. Here's the thing, though. Like you and I wouldn't necessarily know because, as you say, yeah. this would take place behind closed doors. Already for all we know, it's happened. Yeah. And for all we know, you know the the powers. So listen, I mean, DC, right? You know, DC leaks six ways from Sunday. True. It would surprise me. Yeah, I agree. But there's that, that there's only so much clarity it. we're ever going to get on this That's one. Right. I think. That's right. All right. Um, speaking of of lack of clarity over foreign entanglements, right? The the last piece of news we wanted to cover was a, a request from <laughs> a friend of the podcast, Barbara McQuaid, right? The former U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and now professor at, at University of Michigan Law School. Go blue! I hook him. Come on. Go blue! <laughs> so I, I have to betray my. So I am a I am a Michigan child. My parents met at the University of Michigan. I gotta say, I just don't understand. What's that song? Okay, anyway. Is that the Notre Dame fight song? Chris Paul's a Houston Rocket, buddy. Uh, I'm just going to keep that's saying dirty, that. That's dirty pool. <laughs> All right. So um, uh, yesterday, around about the same time, most major media organizations broke that Paul Manafort had belatedly filed a, what did we say, FARA? Is that what we decided Farrah. on? Let's call it FARA. Um, foreign agent registration statement for his and his lobbying firm's involvement with a particular political interest in Ukraine. Right. Not going forward, but From 2012 to 2014, I think was the, was the crux of it. Um, so we've talked briefly about FARA before. Um, I've, I have a long primer on it, you know, that I wrote for Just Security months ago that keeps getting, you know, back in the news. That's timely. <laughs> timely. Um, you know, 
this strikes me, Bobby, as sort of an odd, not that big a story in and of itself, right? But, you know, belated registration is how DOJ historically rolls with regard to Farah. Yeah, like you, the, the the push on the individual is you better come clean. Or else we're going to prosecute you. Right. Even though, even though failing to register is prosecutable. Right, exactly. Let's just be clear. This doesn't actually make... As a technical matter, it doesn't make the violation go away. It just means that historically, DOJ is not going to use its prosecutorial discretion to come after you right. for the non-disclosure well, before. So, so the theory that DOJ has operated under historically is a belated disclosure satisfies the purpose of the statute, which is to get the information out there. Yeah. But it also helps DOJ if it turns out that the belated disclosure is materially either false or incomplete. So that's where it's so interesting. I think a lot of people will look at this and think, oh, well, so that issue's gone away. You know, the, the, the fan of the administration will say, good, you know, put that to rest, quit right. pushing that. We told uh, you he didn't do anything the, wrong. The, those who are critical of the administration will say like, oh, Jeff Sessions is like, you know, doing a favor to this guy. He's, they're kind of, yep. they're going to walk away from it. In fact, uh, this is all part of the usual process, I think. They, you have the disclosure. It should make things go away. But as you said, only if it's this was a complete disclosure. Right. And that's an interesting question here. No, we don't know, but it's easy to imagine. Well, so, there so, could for, still so, be questions. So Michael Flynn's a good example, right? So Flynn belatedly filed a registration statement with regard to his activities vis-a-vis -vis Turkey, right? But that right. still leaves an open question about his involvement with various Russian interests. Right. And one might say, well, wait, why wouldn't he come clean knowing what we just said? Well, because if you've been talking to the FBI and making statements it could be you've said something that would be shown to be false <laughs> if you then later on make a filing as to certain other countries. Which is two separate felonies, right? Felony number one is making a false statement to the FBI. Felony number two is filing a registration statement that you knew to be materially incomplete. So this, my friends, is high stakes poker. Yep. And, and, and not the kind that your buddy can help with. And I think the short version is Paul Manafort just, um, how should I say, anteed? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, that's one way to think of it. And basically, the idea is he, he may have just he may have a strong hand. Like that may be what he had to disclose, and this may be the way of putting his problems yeah, behind him. Yeah. It's also possible there's a bit of bluff, right? Um, hence the we can run this poker metaphor into the ground. I think I think we just did. All right. Um, so I guess you know that's just yet another interesting flashpoint. Um, so we're at about what an hour and nine minutes. Maybe we'll this save. This is probably a good time to stop. Yeah, people are probably like, "Oh my God, stop talking." <laughs> let's but, let's spare them. But but Steve, sing more of the Michigan fight song. <laughs> Don't we have other music we can play? <laughs> um, uh, so that's it for this week, and, uh, and probably next week. Yeah, barring something really extraordinary, uh, you know, we'll be on Twitter. What, you what, can always catch our reactions on Twitter. Sure Steve can. is at at Steve underscore Vladek, and I'm at Bobby Chesney, no underscore. Because, you know, the underscore is just so cool. Why the underscore? Was there an, was somebody, is no. there an at? I just, I just thought that, like, it, visually, it looked, it was clear, like, you know, oh. otherwise it looks like Stevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevavladevav
Yeah, yeah. Well, it's City of Lights and, uh, and babies. La Ville la, la Lumière. Where I, get, where I get to once again see just how terrible my French is. You can go, you can go chain a binky to the uh, bridge where people do all the locks. Um, apparently, actually, they took down a bunch of the locks because it was well, like, just getting heavy on the bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure it was. Um, all right. Well, on that note, I will, I will, uh, I, I will say au revoir. Au revoir. I'll say what everyone says in uh, Colorado, which is Keep goodbye. <laughs> uh, stay safe out there. We'll, we'll be back with you guys without other breaking developments the week of July 10th. Adios.